The Lord's Day uh, before we arrived here at Westminster, I believe it was January 12th, was the, uh, the, the Sunday, the annual celebration of what is called the Epiphany of the Lord. And Epiphany means revelation or unveiling or manifestation. What is less known, however, is that this whole season, this whole time of the church year, from Epiphany Sunday all the way to Lent, which starts in March, was known as, and still is known in many quarters as, Epiphany season. That is, this is a time when the church celebrates, not just on Epiphany Sunday, but throughout this period, the unveiling or the revelation of Christ to the Gentiles. If you pay careful attention to the lectionary readings in these weeks, you'll see this theme over and over and over again. Now, our text this morning from Ephesians chapter 3 is, in a real sense, Paul's commentary, his inspired commentary on the prophetic expectation, the expectation in the prophets that Gentiles would come to the glory and the, the radiant light of Israel. This expectation is seen in places like Isaiah 60, which was used for our call to worship this morning. And just prior to this text, in the second half of Ephesians 2, we saw this last week, Paul sets forth the reality of what the church fathers called the third race. The third race is neither Jew nor Gentile, but it's one new man in Christ. And in that third race, the body of Christ, the rights of citizenship in the household of God have been granted to us Gentiles who were far off. And as we get to the text this morning, as chapter 3 begins, what the Apostle wants to do is he wants to pray for his Gentile readers in light of their new privileges. He starts in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles... But at the mention, the very mention of the word Gentiles, the apostle's thought breaks off. He breaks off the prayer even before it begins. His whole life is bound up with the Gentiles. Paul gets emotional about this theme. He won't even actually pray for them until all the way down in verse 14. Thus, our text is a digression. It's a digression on God's surprising mercy to the Gentiles. And there are no digressions like Paul's digressions. I have digressions in my prayer life, but they don't have the quality of Ephesians verses 1 through 11. So I want to look at this text under two headings. Two headings. First is the revelation of the mystery. And second, the purpose of the mystery. Paul's going to talk about this thing called the mystery we want to see how it's revealed. We want to see what its purpose is. So first, the revelation of the mystery. In verse 2, he refers to this administration, the word means stewardship, of God's grace, which was given to me, he says, for you Gentiles. A sacred commission, Paul was given, in the grace of God for the Gentiles. And this came about, we can see in verse 3, by revelation. He says, 
something called the mystery was made known to him. Notice, this is not a mystery. This is the mystery. In verse 4, he calls it the mystery of Christ. That is, it's the mystery about Christ. It's the mystery of which Christ himself is the sum and substance. And here, it's the mystery which Christ unveils or reveals. This mystery was made known to Paul, the text says, by revelation. Now, what's he referring to? He's referring to his Damascus Road experience. He received the gospel, he says, not through men, but through what he calls a revelation of Jesus Christ. And basic, integral to this revelation is the fact that Paul must, must preach Christ among the Gentiles. You might recall that in in Acts 9 where Paul's conversion is recounted, God says and calls him a chosen vessel to bear my name among the Gentiles or to the Gentiles. This mystery unveiled to Paul, he tells us in verse 5, surprisingly perhaps, was not made known to people in other ages, in prior generations. But now, in the apostolic age, in the first generation of the church, by the Spirit, it's been unveiled to His holy apostles and prophets. And so, we learn something about the New Testament use of this idea of mystery here. Right? By mystery, Paul does not simply mean something mysterious, something obscure. The mystery is not some kind of Agatha Christie riddle to be solved. The mystery is something which was hidden in the plan of God, inaccessible, but now... By revelation alone, it is unveiled. And in verse 5, it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. The mystery, having been hidden, is now revealed. It's an open secret. Now this raises an important question, I think, for students of Scripture. And it's this. If the promises to Abraham included the blessing of all nations, which they do, Paul himself insists on that elsewhere, and if, as is the case, many Old Testament prophets foresaw and predicted the inclusion of the Gentiles in Israel, we saw that in the call to worship from Isaiah 60. Why is it said here to be something which was hidden? and not revealed in the former days. That God would bless the Gentiles, that He would gather them to Israel, is not a new revelation. But how He was now doing it was startling. Contrary to expectations, Gentiles will not have to become Jews. Israel always believed the Gentiles would be gathered, But the Gentiles are not going to have to submit to circumcision and the Old Testament laws which placed a barrier between them and Israel. For in Christ, we saw last week, 
Paul says the barrier's been torn down and a new entity, a new race has been created. In terms of the story I told at the end of last week's sermon, there are no longer whites or blacks, but only greens. A new third race. This is indeed shocking to a first century Jew. It's like having uncircumcised Persian astrologer priests from the East worshiping Israel's Messiah even before he's revealed to the chosen nation. Now we get to the content of this mystery in verse 6. Verse 6, which hopefully is no mystery to you at this point. But if it is, the apostle is going to state it plainly. The mystery hidden in God for ages, the mystery of Christ now revealed is this. So here we want to pay attention. It's that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They are of the same body. They partake of divine promises. Now, last week I tried to explain how the wonder of this has sort of been scoured away from all of us. This is something of a yawn. I mean, think about this. If anyone asked you, what is the great mystery of the Bible, hidden for ages and generations, and finally revealed in the culmination of Jesus? I suspect not one in a hundred of us would say, it's that we Gentiles can be included in the body of Christ. We just take that for granted. We just take it for granted. This is the great mystery. We possess all of this. We can see at the end of verse 6 in Christ through the gospel. The gospel of which Paul became a minister by the gift of God's grace. Grace which transformed the blasphemous persecutor of the church into the apostle to the Gentiles. That's the great mystery. And it means that the church is central to what this mystery means. The second point I want to make is the purpose of the mystery. The mystery is now unveiled. What's its purpose? There's a little biographical note here from Paul first. He says now he's much older than he was at the time of his conversion and his calling. And he's never lost the wonder of the grace which confronted him. He says in verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Here Paul actually invents a word. He has a habit of doing this. He invents a word for his unworthiness. Literally the word is the leaster. I'm I'm less than the least. I'm the leaster of all the saints. We saw in, in 1 Timothy that he says he's the chief of sinners. Even at the very end of his life he says that. And this is not self-loathing on his part, right? He's just profoundly aware of his depravity. And he's grateful for this unexpected, surprising grace which conferred on him this exalted mission. And we, we learn something from the apostle's soul, the state of his soul, his psychology here. And it's this, we should be hard on ourselves so that God won't be hard on us in the day of judgment. Right? Paul did not conduct a scientific survey and get the results back and conclude that he is actually the least of all the saints. 
that of all the sinners in the body of Christ, indeed, he's dead last. But he walks around with a consciousness of himself being the world's great, great, great sinner. We should all be hard on ourselves so God won't be hard on us in the day of judgment. And we should be easy on others so God won't be hard on us in the day of judgment. That's the temperament of the apostle. His sinfulness affects him more radically than the sinfulness of others. This is a rarity, beloved, to find a human being whose own sins are more acutely distressing to them than the sins of the people around them. And not only that, Paul's sins affect him more in his maturity than in his youth. Luther has a, has a little saying where he says, you have, to, you have to slide these dates because people live longer now. He says, young fellows are tempted by girls. Men who are 30 years old are tempted by gold. When they are 40 years old, they are tempted by honor and glory. And those who are 60 years old say to themselves, what a pious man I have become. (laughs) Paul never fell into this pious self-congratulation. In his adult years, he considers himself the very least of all the saints. And the grace that was given to this leaster one is so that he might, as you can see in verse 8, preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable, the unfathomable riches of Christ. And those riches, those riches are the treasure of this mystery of Gentile inclusion, which Paul is unfolding for us. In verse 9, the apostle wants to make us all see what he calls the plan of the mystery. So there's this mystery. What's the plan? What's the plan behind it? We already saw a few weeks back in Ephesians 1 that God's plan was to sum up all things in Christ. Things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, things invisible. So Paul sees his apostleship as making visible the outworkings of that mystery in history. That, by the way, is what we are doing here. That's what the local church exists for. To make manifest the fact that the God who's going to sum up everything in Jesus Christ with the creation of a new man to make that manifest invisible in history. So Paul's pulling back the curtain on the mystery, but he's not finished. Verse 9, he says, this mystery was hidden for ages in God who created all things. And so he's tying this mystery This mystery of you sitting right here worshiping the God of Israel. He ties it to the very purposes of creation. He says in verse 10 that the God who created all things did so with the express purpose that now, right now in this age, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. You see that? Through the church to these rulers and authorities and principalities and powers in the heavenly place. And the the whole reason for the creation itself, the reason there are trees and rocks and snow and seasons and light and darkness is the unveiling or the administration of this mystery of Gentile inclusion in order that 
as Paul says, God's manifold wisdom might be made known through the church to the angelic powers in the heavens. And the word for manifold here is the same word used in the Old Testament of Joseph's multicolored coat. Right? It's God's many-colored, unspeakably beautiful wisdom on display in the mystery, the mystery of the third race. This took deep root in the church's consciousness even from the earliest days. One of the earliest letters, uh, pieces of Christian literature that we have, is called the Shepherd of Hermas. It's a document that comes from the early 2nd century, possibly even the late 1st century. It had very wide influence, even being accepted into the canon or as canonical scripture in some places, though eventually it was not included in the New Testament. And in this document, in this letter called the Shepherd of Hermas, a slave, a former slave, named Hermas, receives a series of visions. And what he sees in these visions is an aged woman who is becoming increasingly younger as the visions proceed. And at one point, a youth comes to Hermas and says to him, who do you think that the aged woman from whom you received the book, who do you think she is? And Hermas doesn't know, and he says, I don't know, the Sibyl? And the youth says, thou art wrong. She is not. Hermas says, well, well then who is she? And the youth says, she is the church. And I said to him, why then is she aged? And he said to me, because she was created before all things. Therefore she is aged. And for her sake, the world was framed. For her sake, the world was framed. That's precisely what Paul is affirming here. God created all things so that his many-colored wisdom might now be made known through the church. And notice who the audience is, to whom it's made known, at the end of verse 10, to the rulers and authorities. There's no need to see this as merely evil powers. All the angelic hosts, good and evil, are instructed by the grace of God on display in the community of the saints. The evil powers can see their doom in the church. All their attempts to divide and destroy and to alienate humanity are overcome in the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile to God and to each other in this one new man. Remember, at 1 Peter, we're told that the prophets proclaimed the coming of the Lord and they proclaimed things that angels longed to look into. And the good angels then are here depicted as peering in, straining to see the mystery of the reconciliation of all things in Christ. And so this means that the life of the church, in one of my favorite phrases, a memorable phrase of, of, of one author, the life of the church is the graduate school for the angels. It's the place where the manifold wisdom of God is unveiled to all the principalities and powers, good and bad. This is the graduate school for the angels. Finally, in verse 11, we're told that all of this is in accord with God's eternal purpose. So you have to go back further than creation. This is birthed in the eternal purpose of God realized in Jesus Christ our Lord. This mystery has been unveiled. 
The epiphany of Christ has come. Now it's being enacted in the church. You know, if Ephesians 1, the first text I preached when I came to Westminster, sets forth the centrality of the grace of the triune God in Christ, this text adds the necessary corollary, and that is the centrality of the church, the utter indispensability of the body of Christ. And I want to conclude then with four quick applications of this text to our lives. Four quick applications. The first one is this. The church can never forsake its rich root in the history of Israel. They are our fathers. Their history is your family history. You do not need Ancestry.com. You just need the Old Testament. You know, I say that only kidding a little bit. You know, the Bible's not joking when he calls Abraham our father. These are our fathers. This is our family. Yet the consciousness of this barely penetrates Gentile American Christians at all. So we can spend hundreds of hours on Ancestry.com and zero hours on Leviticus. These are our fathers. It would be nice if we acted like it. That means the third race, you and I, are a people of the whole Bible. Because that whole heritage is ours in Christ. Second, this means the church alone is central to history. There's no other institution. There's no other organization. She is the reason the worlds were framed. That doesn't mean there are not lots of other important institutions. Of course they are. But the church is the reason the worlds were framed. All history is church history. For the God who works everything after the counsel of his will does so for the sake of his bride. You know, just down the road from here, I think it's in Westchester County, uh, Crestwood, New York, there's a uh, Russian Orthodox seminary, St. Vladimir's Theological Seminary. It's a beautiful place. Pastor Vance and I used to go down there about once a year to buy books and nose around the place. And uh, one of the great Russian Orthodox uh, theologians of the 20th century taught there for many, many years, a man named Alexander Shmeiman. And Shmeiman, in his uh, memoirs, Shmeiman died in the 80s, speaks of another famous Russian Orthodox Christian with which he, whom he was friends, namely Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And he has some interesting things to say. He says, you know, he likes Solzhenitsyn, of course, he thinks he's a great writer, but he says, here's the difference between Solzhenitsyn and myself. For him, Shmeiman says, for Solzhenitsyn, Russia is everything. Holy Mother Russia, Holy Russia, Russia this, Russia that. Solzhenitsyn is a nationalist. Shmeiman says, for me, the church is everything. He says, for me, now get this, Russia could disappear and vanish and nothing essential would be lost in my vision of the world. Now, how many American Christians can say that about their nation? 
For me, America could disappear and vanish and nothing essential would change in my vision of the world. Because the world was framed for the sake of the church. And there is no loyalty which challenges that loyalty. None. No human loyalty, no biological loyalty, no familial loyalty, no political loyalty. For Solzhenitsyn, Russia is everything. For me, the church is everything. Third application. The church is central and integral to the gospel. She's not an afterthought. Right? Because this reconciliation of Jew and Gentile in one body is the great mystery. The creation of this church is the graduate school for the angels. And fourth, the church is central to the Christian life because all of our rights of citizenship and sonship and free access and the blessings and the glory promised to Israel come to us Gentiles in and through this glorious body of Christ. So let me exhort us in what I think Westminster has done well, but in which I encourage you to continue to excel. Give yourself wholly to the public worship of God here. Pray for the prosperity of the work of God here. Give yourself to the committees and the various ministries of this church. Missions, evangelism, worship, fellowship, VBS, Christian education. Don't be a dead member. The church is an all-hands-on-deck organization. There are no spectators. The only spectators are the angels. That means we have to give ourselves to the service of one another, loving one another fervently from the heart. Because we must have relationships which are authentic demonstrations of the reconciliation which has come in the one new man. In the midst of this community, God is revealing His manifold wisdom to the heavenly powers. May we be a people who can say in truth the words of our closing hymn today. And let me cite a couple stanzas. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer, saved with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, engraven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. It is in this way that Westminster Presbyterian Church will be an ongoing epiphany of Christ in the midst of the darkness. Praise be to God for the mystery, hidden, now revealed, lived and enacted in the church. Amen.